This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, everybody. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Could I have that? Good evening, everybody. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Now, tonight's program focuses really on and mostly on Mark Butler's new book called Climate Wars. And I interviewed Mark Butler earlier this morning, so I'm only going to use a little bit of his interview, like the first 20 minutes, and then I'll play you the full hour later in the month or in September. But I thought it would be good to have just a focus on the last decade, what we've been through. You and I have all been through as citizens through this, but the people in Parliament, what did they go through, what it was like for them? And Mark Butler talks about the climate wars, how we sort of stopped ourselves, stopped Australia taking the lead that we thought we all would in 2007. When Kevin Rudd came to power, we thought, oh, this is on this wave. We're going to be having climate action all around. But it's it's stagnant. Well, it achieved some things, but then it stagnated. We'll also have towards the end Christine Milne uh, speaking to us about her experience of that time and John Hewson, who is um, part of the, you know, he's a Liberal, but he, he is not in government at the moment. He was leader of the uh, Liberal Party um, before all of that happened, but he's very advanced in his thinking about climate change and is really often speaking at all the same events that those two previous people were um, all on climate action. He, he really gets it, so that's why I thought his comments would be very valuable. So let's go now to Mark Butler and my uh, part of my talk with him this morning about climate wars. Climate Wars is the Honourable Mark Butler's new book. It's not about the war we need to have with a massive decarbonisation and rollout of infrastructure. It's about a war in Canberra between the opposing parts of Parliament, delaying action, protecting and subsidising coal and gas, and a decade when many citizens have lost hope and respect for Parliament. Mark Butler has been in government and in opposition, and he's the Shadow Minister for Climate Change at the moment. He's often out in the community consulting with workers, businesses and activists. He witnessed the world's first repeal of a carbon tax and he's seen renewable energy jobs disappear as investors become disgusted by the policy uncertainties. And he's also witnessed in South Australia, I would say, a steady taking up of leadership in renewable energy. So welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Mark, your book starts with a concert in Adelaide. It does, and for me, that was really um, the, the peak of the, frankly, the stupidity of some of the public debate around uh, climate change and energy policy. It followed really quite an extraordinary week where there had been a very high-profile press conference between the South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall and the Federal Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg, where I think the South Australian Premier really vented about six or nine months of gratuitous political attack by the Federal Government on, on South Australia's energy problems. And then within a couple of days, people might remember Elon Musk getting involved in a Twitter conversation about the installation of a large battery, which is now actually underway in South Australia. Yes. He, he agreed that if he couldn't deliver a 100 megawatt battery, which is extremely 
extraordinarily large by global standards. Within three months, it would be free. And within only a couple of days of that, we had this extraordinary concert uh, at the Adelaide Oval. My daughter went, my 15-year-old daughter was there. The Adele concert with 70,000 fans. And at one stage, the revolving stage that Adele was on was designed and built in Bendigo, pulled an electricity cord out of the socket, causing some of the amplification to go down. And so there was an interruption to the concert for a few minutes. But during those few minutes, a whole bunch of News Corp uh, um, journalists jumped onto social media and blamed the interruption to part of the power supply on renewable energy. And Chris Kenny, who was hosting a Sky News, his Sunday night Sky, Sky News program at the time, also declared that there was another power our blackout in South Australia and for me it just highlighted the degree to which opponents of ambitious forward-looking climate change and energy policy really will grasp onto absolutely anything and blame renewable energy for things that are frankly caused by very different scenarios whether it's the extraordinary storm event that happened last September in South Australia that blew down 23 steel transmission towers mm. or whether it's the fact that a revolving stage pulls a power cord out of a socket which is then just put back in by I'm sure a very flustered groupie. Yeah and I think there's a kind of cognitive dissonance for the listeners and audience for this sort of media because you've seen the photos of the power towers going down and the people at the Adele concert would have seen that it was all fixed up in a few seconds like you think how is how to compute all of this and I wonder how you in parliament you must see lots of press and media coverage of things that's completely wrong um how hard is it for you to push back well it is hard and as your introduction said um this my book is not um not advocating a continuation of the climate no. wars, far be it. It's advocating an end to the climate wars because without some sort of breakout of peace on this issue, it is going to be very difficult for Australia to make the transition to clean energy. But equally, it's not an argument for unilateral disarmament. I mean, the only way we end the wars is by taking on that loud minority who shout down, who shout down every attempt to make a progressive change on climate and energy policy. Uh, and I describe um, in the book and in the speeches I've been making about the book uh, a parallel universe where um, some of our media uh, a shrinking number of our business organisations but certainly a group of our politicians led by Tony Abbott have really tried to shift the, the Australian public debate around climate and energy policy into a par parallel universe which for most of the rest of the countries of the world who are making this transition would simply be unrecognisable. Yes, and I mean, a lot of people realise that there's fossil fuel money behind this. Well, there is, and there's, there's a much less tangible, I think, um, attempt by some on the right of politics just to have a fight about this for the sake of having a fight about something. Uh, and you will have seen in the years past, um, for those who've been watching this debate for, for some time, uh, right-wing uh, political figures like Nick Minchin and Andrew Robb from the Liberal Party actually writing quite blatantly about climate change being a leftist conspiracy uh, designed to try and achieve the destruction of capitalism in a way that the Cold War wasn't able to do. Mm. They actually think that this is all essentially made up to give the left something that, to talk about and something to campaign around rather than a, an agenda which has 
simply flowed from very clear scientific consensus, which has been building now for the past three or four decades. Yeah. Well, look, your book chronicles the last decade really well, and most listeners will remember the last decade. Before that, they mightn't remember. But, and I remember, you know, ten years ago, Malcolm Turnbull and Bob Carr, at the start of the, the decade, they were together launching Beyond Zero Emissions' first report. It was all about how we'd roll out all this, you know, renewable energy infrastructure. It was all going to happen in 10 years, and they endorsed it. And Sydney Town Hall, it was filled to capacity, and it was ecstatic. And I remember thinking then, oh, you know, 2007, 2017, it's going to be full of climate action. I didn't quite believe we'd roll out all of that in 10 years, but, you know, I just thought once they get onto it, it's going to be full of climate action. And Europe, in that same time, did get onto it. The UK put into, you know, um, agreeable policies to both parties, or all the major parties agreed, and Europe got on with with that sort of um, rollout. But what happened here? Well, I think there's still uh, a furious debate about whether that period 2007 and 2008 actually did see a genuine consensus build between particularly the two major parties, the Liberal and the Labor Party here in Australia, or whether it was really all just a facade. And people will have maybe seen John Howard make a number of speeches over the last few years where he says that his decision finally to yield to public pressure and to uh, establish a Liberal Party policy the introduction of an emissions trading scheme did not reflect his deep-held beliefs. Actually, he describes it as simply a political device to deal with some pressure that an insurgent Labor Party was placing on the Howard government in its last 12 months in office. And I think the facts really do bear out the argument that flows from Howard's speech, that, that really within the Liberal Party, although there was the facade of a surrender to sensible climate change policy, actually there was still under the radar a very strong group, a very powerful group within the Liberal Party and certainly the National Party that were opposed to any uh, serious climate change policy. And that group reasserted itself, as people will know, in 2009 in opposing Malcolm Turnbull's decision to negotiate with the Labor government, led then by Kevin Rudd, around a carbon pollution reduction scheme and ultimately to topple Malcolm Turnbull from the leadership altogether and put in place Tony Abbott instead. Mm. I don't think most people can really believe how vicious it is and, and was in Parliament. You were there in the Parliament at that time. What was it like as Rudd, who came in really on a wave of climate action approval... Um, you know. well, it was an extraordinary time, and it was really across the world. As you, as you said, David Cameron, uh, who was the new Conservative leader in the UK, had decided to try and rid his party of what he called the sort of image of nastiness. And one of the ways in which he did that was to um, make much more progressive their view about climate change policy. And ultimately that led to the Climate Change Act in 2008 in the United Kingdom being supported by both major parties. It was Labor legislation, but it was supported by David Cameron. And then ultimately when David Cameron won government, he continued to implement the Climate Change Act and a big, a big push towards renewable energy. At the same time, in 2008, it's often not remembered that Barack Obama and John McCain, who was the Republican candidate for president that year, mm. both took to the presidential election in 2008 a cap-and-trade scheme, which is really their description of what we call an emissions trading scheme. 
So across the world, there was a bit of a breakout of pro-climate change politics in the world. But um, after the division and the disappointment of the Copenhagen conference and a very concerted campaign funded by the Koch brothers in the United States, um, a, a pair of very rich billionaires in the US who have a long history of funding right-wing uh, campaigns, whether it's a, uh, opposed to tobacco control or more recently opposed to climate and energy policy. Across the world, there was a very strong push back against that building momentum for, for a strong climate change consensus. Uh, people might remember they really grasped onto a conspiracy theory about emails that have been uncovered mm. at one university, which ultimately was yeah. shown to be re really coming to nothing. Oh, that took um, up ages too, didn't it? All the right. debate about it just took all the oxygen out of it. That's right. And and that combined, I think, with the, the, the increasing focus on immediate economic issues that flowed from the global financial crisis really did puncture um, that sense of hope that had existed across the world in 2006, 7 and 8. Yeah, but it's an ideological thing that's been building. You say the Koch brothers put money in, and I know here money's been put into media, but there's also these think tanks where people go. Naomi Klein describes it in her big book, This Changes Everything, You know, where, where she goes to the Heartland Institute, and they're just putting forward a worldview that now we see in American um, Congress, you know, we've, those people have now got power. They've actually got power, but before that they were behind the scenes. Do you think, how can you account for that here? Well, I think because there are very strong connections between those think tanks in the US and the think tanks here like the IPA uh, and others, and certainly very strong lines of communication between particularly the right wing of the Liberal Party and um, that group within the Republican Party that have been pushing back against that consensus that was building. Uh, uh, so, so there's been those connections for a long time and, and, and that's why I think you see um, probably in America and Australia the high point, not in a good way, but the, the high point of that climate change scepticism. You just don't see it really in any other democracy. I mean, it, it played a bit in Canada under Stephen Harper, but really Australia and America stand out as the beacons for climate change scepticism, significantly because of the role played by some in business, but certainly those think tanks and a number within the media. Mm, it's very shaming for us because I interview a lot of people, Europeans, and they say, why how did, how did this happen? How can you not just get on with it? You know, an educated public would see through this, and I, I just flinch, you know. Well, I think what you see here in Australia is um, below, the, below the level of national parliament, um, a lot of other organs within our society just getting on with it, whether it's state governments That's doing true. things like the Victorian Renewable Energy Target yeah. and what South Australia is doing here, Queensland and so many others. Local councils are really pushing hard, particularly the capital city councils for zero emissions policies. But most notably, I think, households are just doing it. I mean, what we have seen is that while our national Parliament has been a real laggard globally in climate change policy. Australian households outstrip any other country in the world in take-up uh, of rooftop solar. 1.7 million households now have rooftop solar for a whole range of reasons. People have done this, but significantly um, as their contribution to environmental sustainability and climate change action. There are more Australian households indeed that have rooftop solar than America has, you know, with about 310 or 320 million people in it. 
And on top of that, you know, they've got organised. I've seen you at um, Solar Council conferences and uh, Solar Citizens, and they've sort of realised they can unify as solar rift op owners and and have a little bit of political push and i really think that's wonderful how they they've done that it's that's fantastic they've kept and, very focused and, and even while um many of our traditional media outlets uh, are pushing back against climate change action uh, the the explosion in social media platforms has really allowed groups like that solar citizens solar council many many others beyond zero emissions doing fabulous uh, publication work for irregular it really gives a platform to get around the Murdoch organs or around Alan Jones and Ray Hadley and the others to um, to see that communication happen. But at the end of the day, it is going to there is going to be a glass ceiling, a relatively low glass ceiling, on Australia's ability to take strong climate action if the national parliament doesn't get its act together. Mm. And that is one of the differences, I think, between America and Australia, in that um, in spite of the fact that. Donald Trump has decided to pull America, America out of the Paris Agreement and clearly takes a very um, strong climate change sceptic approach to this. The American states still have substantial power to continue uh, doing what um, they were doing under the Obama presidency. Oh, yes. so California and New York, they have 50% renewable energy targets by 2030, uh, as, as we do as Labor Party policy here. And they're just going to continue doing that, frankly, in spite of of what Donald Trump said. Yeah, yeah. Well, you come back to Australia now to the government level. You say that in your book that fossil fuel the industry has demonstrated an unrivaled ability to stymie governments seeking to implement strong climate and energy policy. Well, any delay they can get is good because they, they can keep on making money out of it. But how have you seen this in action? How does it work in the corridors of power? Well, I mean, you only really need to look at the, the second term of the last Labor government to see it operating in practice um, in two in two very high-profile instances, the, the first being the mining tax, which was a, a super profits tax for companies um, earning very high profits at the height of the commodities boom, and you saw really an unprecedented campaign financially and in terms of its ferocity against the government's attempt to introduce a, a pretty basic super profits tax of the type that we've had since the 1980s for offshore oil and gas projects, for example. Mm. And the second is the, the campaign against the carbon, the, the carbon pricing mechanism, the so-called carbon tax uh, under Julia Gillard and Greg Combe. And the thing I, I point out about that is that it's all well and good for businesses and other, other organs of civil society to, uh, to debate the detail of government policy. And, and that's how a, you know, a vibrant democracy works. But the, the criticism I make of a number of business groups at that time is that they effectively signed up to Tony Abbott's agenda, which argued that not only was that they went far beyond the argument that there was a problem with the detail of our policy. Tony Abbott argued that there should not be a climate change policy at all. Mm. He said we didn't need a climate change and energy policy at all. And too many business groups signed up to that. And I think now we're bearing the consequences of that because for four years we've had an utter vacuum in climate change and energy policy, which has seen two very unsurprising things happen. The first is that carbon pollution has started to rise again so that we're now pretty much the only major advanced economy in the world where carbon pollution is going up, 
not coming down. And the second thing we've seen happen is an energy crisis develop because none of the energy companies know what the rules are going to be because there are no rules mm-hmm. governing investment nationally now. And we're getting to the point where there's no investment coming through in a structural sense to our electricity system, which is creating a crisis that's hurting businesses and hurting households. Okay, well, look, could we just go back to that period of the Gillard government that you mentioned? That most listeners will remember the, the hung parliament and they'll remember Julia Gillard, Christine Milne, Tony Windsor and others and how hard they worked in those feverish times, really, uh, on the Clean Energy Act, which brought in, I think, in the first year, quite a, a decrease in emissions. You know, we actually saw the emissions even in that first year. And you say that it was a feverish time bordering on hysteria with horrible headlines. I think everyone will remember the um, Gillard, Bob Brown's bitch, you know, really hateful speech being put out in the public and uh, repeated in the echo chamber. But after that, hysteria had all died down and you were writing in cool reflection in Climate Wars. I wondered why you didn't seem to uh, give more credit to the Greens and those others in their contribution at that stage in history in getting that Clean Energy Act that was so forward-seeking with the clean energy finance and the arena and all the things in place that we could have built on. Yeah. Well, look, it was a, it was a very good process that Greg was able, Greg Combe was able to lead with um, the support of the Greens Party and Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott, the two New South Wales rural independents at the time. And it came up with a package that I think objectively was recognised as, as um, really world's best practice in climate change and renewable energy and financing mechanisms and such like. Uh, but it, you know, the problem, the problem with it was it, it didn't have the support of the other major party and so um, it didn't last more than two years and, and I think that that's really the challenge Australia has um, recognised around the world that if you're going to put in place policy that actually sees a big shift in the way in which the economy operates it needs to have a level of consensus underpinning it at a political level particularly consensus between the two major parties of the type you see in the United Kingdom and many other developed countries and I think that's, that's really the message of the book You're listening to 3CR Radio Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We're talking tonight about legacy and Christian Milne is with us on the phone to talk about that legacy of the last decade. She's the former leader of the Greens in state and federal parliament and she put a huge amount of effort into that Clean Energy Act that Mark Butler was just talking about, as he said, world's best practice. Welcome, Christine. Thanks. Nice to be with you again. I'm glad to hear your voice. Look, what did you think about that? You witnessed the Clean Energy Act come into effect and then it was axed. And Mark Butler said it needed the consensus of the two big parties for it to have survived. How do you respond to that? Uh, Well, I just go back to the GST. Um, Howard brought in the GST. Labor opposed it. 
furiously at the time and said that they would do everything to repeal it and a few years later they abandoned that policy and just gave in to it. So I don't agree at all that uh, it's necessary to have bipartisan support. It's useful to have bipartisan support. It'd be good if you could get it. But without you shouldn't not proceed just because you don't have it. And uh, even going back to Rudd's uh, carbon pollution reduction scheme in 2009, at no stage did he have bipartisan support. Not the first time he introduced it. That's why it was voted down when Turnbull was the leader, nor did he have it the second time. So there never has been bipartisan support for an emissions trading scheme in Australia when anything actually hit the parliament. But that doesn't excuse anyone for not proceeding with good climate policy. I guess where I take issue with Mark Butler is that um, I'm pleased that he's out there saying we need to move on climate. Uh, absolutely we do and uh, that's good to see that he's doing that. But it's a very broad brush approach in the book which leaves out a lot of critical detail. And I think people reading it will just perhaps not remember some of that detail. So it's more of a Labor Party revisionism of history rather than actually what happened. And if I can just give you a couple of specific examples. So the one you just raised with him, the only reason that the Gillard government in 2010 moved on a carbon price was because the Greens made it a condition of Labor actually going into government, of Gillard being Prime Minister. Now, I was part of those negotiations with Bob Brown and we put to Julia Gillard at the time that we wanted a carbon price and that that was um, a condition of putting her into government. We also said that there had to be a multi-party climate committee and that on that committee there would be experts appointed. And that's precisely uh, what happened. In terms of what was in the package, um, Mark Butler says in the book that um, I think, you know, that he uh, he's critical of me for saying that the Gillard package was better than the CPRS. Um, but in fact, uh, anyone who looks at the two packages would see that as just, um, well, as revisionism because it was because the Greens were there that we insisted on the $10 billion for the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Uh, it was because of the experience with the solar flagships programs that I insisted on ARENA and we got that uh, organisation. We got the Climate Change Authority so that we could get an independent way of working out what the best target would be because Labor and the Greens could never agree with Labor stuck on a 5% reduction emissions target. Um, plus we had the carbon farming initiative and of course Labor and the Greens both supported the renewable energy target. Now all of those things made an incredible package that was world's best practice that the International Energy Agency said at the time uh, was a template legislation for a developed country but their criticism of it was it was way too generous for the fossil fuel uh, interests, generators and I would totally agree with that but we couldn't make it any less because um, neither the Prime Minister nor Greg Combe would agree to a package that reduced that level of compensation to coal -fired, uh, the coal-fired sector. Now, none of that detail is in the book, nor is there the detail there. I mean, uh, Mark talked about the importance of high-speed rail. I couldn't agree more, but he, he glosses over the fact that in the Labor-Green agreement we got the uh, the commitment 
for a report on high-speed rail. $20 million was uh, spent on a feasibility study, which Adam Bant and I released in Melbourne um, in 2013. So it wasn't as a result of Anthony Albanese's op-ed that suddenly there was an interest in high-speed rail. It was because $20 million was spent as a result of that agreement. And I could go on. Energy efficiency is another area where... Mark says how important it is, and I agree, totally agree, energy efficiency is critical. He fails to say, though, it was the Rudd government's complete mismanagement of the home insulation program and the green loans program, both of which actually were excellent programs, but they were totally mismanaged because Kevin Rudd wanted to roll them out very fast in response as part of the stimulus package and the GFC and as a result they were bungled terribly deaths occurred, the Royal Commission was held into those deaths and all of that set energy efficiency back years now you can't tell the story of this period without acknowledging that that was a disaster of energy efficiency that took a long time to get back on track. Right. Well, I think this is the problem of history, isn't it? It depends on who tells it, and he calls it climate wars. It's like who wins the war tells the story. Exactly. And so well, that's why I'm giving you a chance to... I know how integral you were to it, and I think the Greens were probably way ahead, you know, in their connections and with their own constituencies telling them we need this urgent action. None, none of the things that are on offer are enough. We want urgent. I remember that time very well and it was so urgent and it still is urgent except that we've spent all this time in the wilderness and the real target of our sort of um, efforts to change things should really be the the troglodytes who are now running things and you only have to look at America to see you know former head of Exxon sort of in the government so Oh, look, it, it, is, um, it is a very difficult time, um, but detail and authenticity and consistency across all the sectors matter. Yes. Now, one area which has come into a lot of discussion lately is land use, and I'm very pleased about that because I disagree with um, Mark, in, say, Mark Butler in, when he talks about the sophistication of the land use sector in Australia. In my view... The whole land use, land use change and forestry part of global negotiations has been rorted by Australia in the most disgusting manner since the start with the Australia Clause. And that goes on to this very day where I have just seen that um, under the Emission Reduction Fund in the December auctions this year, the new plantations rule will come in. And once again, you'll have people being paid for putting in short-term plantations, which make absolutely zero difference um, to the climate. They're just a a rort um, for the plantation owners. And the other one is native forest logging. You know, Malcolm Turnbull came down to Tasmania last week and announced a renewal of the Regional Forest Agreement um, that will now roll on indefinitely into the future. And those Regional Forest Agreements are backed by Labor 100%. Now, you can't have a chapter in your book talking about land use, land use change in forestry and fail to mention forestry and just talk about um, land clearance. I couldn't agree more we have to end the land clearance in Victoria and, uh, sorry, in New South Wales and Queensland. But we have to stop logging in Victoria as well. We have to stop the logging in Tasmania. They are vast carbon stores Mm. that Liberal and Labor both support destroying. So you have to actually get consistent across all these sectors 
but it is it's actually I think there's been a shift um, where uh, we went through that horror period of climate denialism where the Murdoch press and others got going and gave false equivalence to climate deniers like Ian Plymer, mm. Bob Carter, who got the same column inches, the same time on television as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for example, which was just terrific. But I think we've got past that and there's now almost an embarrassment for the complete failure of leadership in Australian business during that period. And I heard Mark Butler say, you know, they were mm. all there supporting Abbott and they were. Mm. And what we've now got is almost an embarrassed sort of saying, oh, well, I think maybe we made a mistake. I think we actually should have a carbon price. But when then you look at it and the energy intensity scheme is designed to prop up gas because all of these business leaders went and invested heavily in gas and won't accept that they've now got stranded assets. When we come to the transport sector, you know, the Greens argued for mandatory vehicle fuel efficiency standards. And again, Mark Butler criticises the Greens for the in the, the Gillard Greens uh, clean energy package for saying it didn't include mandatory fuel efficiency standards. No, it didn't because Labor refused to have them there. They were certainly put forward by us in the negotiations. And the reason for that is because Australia was subsidising the manufacture of gas guzzlers in Victoria and South Australia and Labor would not pass a mandatory fuel efficiency standard that the cars we made wouldn't meet. And that's why Mark Butler says, oh, now it's a bit easier than it was. Yes, that's right, because the car industry has left the country and so now we can have those standards. But we should actually be just saying, let's go electric, let's just leapfrog this. It is, it is, you've already got um, Norway saying no petrol or diesel cars after 2025. I think France and Britain have gone 2040. Sweden's gone 2025. At the rate we're going, Australia is going to be a dumping ground for European cars that they won't be able to sell in Europe. Yeah. Look, uh, look I, this theme of embarrassment and catch-up is absolutely coming through all the time for yes. me. But look, come on, let's focus again. Um, he, he talks a lot about neoliberalism and this ideology uh, that's sort of infiltrated the media. And uh, just yesterday or Saturday, on the Saturday paper, there was an article about the same people who are opposing equal marriage also oppose climate action. And they're sort of, sort of a branch of Christianity that, that just seems to have taken away their brain. And um, Butler talks about a sort of alternative reality. People go from this alternative reality. And it has felt like that in the last decade, that people are you know, who were conservatives who could be banked on to be really stodgy and conservative are now kind of wacky. So, um, but that's not, I shouldn't use a funny word like that because Naomi Klein talks about it. They're vicious yeah. and it's, it's awful. So neo, neoliberalism is not an ideology that suits climate change and I think we need more regulation, more collective action, not yeah. deregulation. We need a social contract. You know, why is Corbyn getting so many people around because he's offering a social contract. Here's all of the things you know, intersectionality, all the things that are wrong in society have uh, have a connected solution and I think climate change is a part of all of that and we need not just a decent life for ourselves but a, a future for ourselves and for the whole of um, biodiversity, whatever we can call it. So what, well, what's your exactly analysis so of all that, that neoliberalism? 
nature and humanity, yeah. of course, are one. We are only one world and we are part of nature and that's what people have forgotten. Humanity is not separate. We are actually part of nature and um, that's one thing that isn't spoken about at all in Mark's book, which is the impact of global warming on biodiversity and I suspect that is because Labor has continued to support the logging and also it was Tony Burke that gave out those massive approvals for Gloucester's coal and gas and Whitehoven, um, Moles Creek, lead forest destruction and so on. But getting to your issue of neoliberalism, um, it's, it's certainly true that what we've seen is tribalism. Um, essentially, the tribe that support um, accumulation of as much as possible for individuals at the expense of everybody else have mainly got their... Um, wealth from extracting the earth's resources and maximising the profit to themselves and it doesn't matter whichever way you look at it, that's why they want privatised health, they want privatised prisons they want privatised everything um, the other side there's um, the other way of looking at the world is that we actually live in communities, not in an economy, we live in a society and we need to, to recognise that equality of opportunity is actually about lifting everybody. It's not about just dog eat dog. And I think that is just the fundamental difference. Um, and that's where the, the conservatives have become um, extreme right wing. They are no longer the liberals of old. There are parts of them that, they are, that are just off on a tangent on the extreme right wing. And Tony Abbott's just using it now as a way of trying to get back the leadership of the, the LNP. And, and the Nationals are with him, and that's tragic for rural Australia because if, if one group of people needs to have strong united action on mitigating global warming and adapting to what we've already got, it's people who live in rural and regional Australia who are suffering as a result of extreme heat, fire... Uh, loss of soil moisture, loss of river, you know, capacity and so on. We, we desperately need rural Australia to uh, abandon the nationals because uh, that's just such a bad way for them, mm. uh, for their future and, and for the environment. Christine, just to finish, I'd like to um, remind you of the times that you and Mark Butler shared a pat platform. I saw you at several RSLs in funny places and yeah. on a platforms in cold wintry nights and there'd always be an empty chair and that used to would be usually the local member who was a Liberal or a National person and both of you would comment on that and you'd be there explaining the renewable energy target and explaining, you know, really communicating and educating the public on this quite difficult area of climate change and um, defending solar businesses and jobs. And I remember those diff very different audiences and you were both, I thought, great battlers and travelled huge numbers of miles to get there. And I wonder what you made of that empty chair. Well, it was, it was just um, a decision that the LNP, the, the Liberals, made uh, to leave it empty because they could only get a certain amount of criticism for not turning up. If they had turned up, I think they would have just annoyed people intensely and made it worse for themselves, and that's why they didn't come. But essentially, those meetings were about protecting the renewable energy target um, and keeping it at 41,000 gigawatt hours and... 
um, the disappointment to me was after all those meetings that Mark Butler came and argued for the retention of 41,000 gigawatt hours. In the end, uh, Labor um, gave in to the pressure from the Conservatives and the fossil fuel sector and reduced the renewable energy target to 33,000 gigawatt hours. But um, Labor remains committed to a renewable energy target. The Greens, of course, want to go uh, further than that and want to get to 100% renewable energy as quickly as we can. But, you know, we've actually got to the point where we're living in a climate emergency. You know, I just look at the figures and I see that, you know, the scientists are saying achieving 1.5 degrees is almost beyond us. Um, we've got three or four years max, if that, um, to stay within that budget. Even two degrees is getting beyond us. We are seeing what's happening with Hurricane Harvey. We've just seen massive flooding in Bangladesh, in Nepal, in India. You're seeing crop failure on a massive scale in Africa and starvation and people movement. In the Pacific, you're seeing the wash loss of, you know, whole area villages and cultural areas as a result of sea level rise. Um, we are now in exactly what you said, that interrelated um, systems, planetary systems, are now failing. We're seeing that the thermohaline conveyor is slowing down as you get that more fresh water melt from Greenland. So just saying, you know, one party's marginally better than another on this or that or the Greens have got more advanced policies, yes, but we actually need the whole of society to now say, you know what? Unless we all come together and make this transformation really fast, we all suffer. I mean, Stephen Hawking is out there having revised his forecast of the future of humanity from a thousand years to a hundred years. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which is pretty incredible, oh, yeah. um, but I'm not suggesting. I'm not saying that that you know what I'm. I'm not suggesting. I know where you're going. I know where what you're I'm going. saying yeah. is, we have reached a stage where this is not just a casual discussion that people should be having about climate change as one of the policies going to an election, and then we yeah. might look at yeah, at some other policy or this policy. There's or an something. absurdity about it. It's sort of waiting for Godot, isn't it? It's really some it absurd drama it. here. Exactly, and we have now a a crisis for humanity and the natural world, and the feedback loops are starting to kick in. The negative feedback loops, whether it's you know the um, methane bubbling up, whether it's the, the Greenland ice sheets, the Antarctic ice sheets, the, the oceans, the acidification. And that's my frustration at the moment is we have to somehow find a way for people to say, get out of this sort of tribal zones that everybody's in and let's come together because the, the opportunity, the other, the, the other side of this coin is the opportunity that... We actually don't like a lot of about the way we live, stuck in traffic jams forever, yeah. uh, living in poorly insulated houses and all yeah. sorts. We don't like um, poor air quality in our cities. We don't like people being unhealthy near coal plants and so on. If we actually took this on in a holistic manner... Oh, we would Christine, be healthier and happier. It's another whole program, I know. Yes. <laughs> we'll have so to do I that another time. But thank you so yes. much for putting so much, you know, your usual 
across Everest. I'm so glad you're really across it. You'll never give up on this as we will. I'll never give up on this. No, no, you won't. And I'm glad glad to hear your voice again. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for contributing to tonight's show and, and good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, listeners, now we have John Hewson, also a former leader, but this time of the Liberal Party, and he's a climate leader in his own way, especially regarding the effects on the financial system of climate change. And he and Christine Milne are also have also often been on platforms together. I've seen them at conferences where they're considered to be both very worthwhile um, people on the same page, really. So we're looking at climate policy in the last decade from Kevin 07 to 2007. And John, are you there? I am, Vivian. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for um, being available to talk to us tonight. I don't know if you heard the last bit there, Christine, when we were talking about Mark Butler's new book, Climate Wars. Um, Yes. I wondered if you'd like to fill us in a bit on the Liberal side, though I know you're not here to um, represent the Liberal government, the present government, but I I know that you know a lot of those people and you, you certainly have been the leader of that party before. So... I want you to fill us in the legacy. Malcolm Turnbull, he was leader of the opposition, then Abbott displaced him, he became Prime Minister, then Turnbull replaced him. Would you say that climate policy was a major theme behind this? Well, yes, the climate event, the the climate policy has been used for short-term political opportunism uh, by both sides of politics and within the Liberal Party, between the Liberal Party and the National Party for a long time. When I go back to my election strategy in 93, when I had an environment policy, which I'm sure nobody bothered to read because they were worried about the GST or something else, but it called for a 20% cut in emissions by the year 2000 off a 1990 base. And here we are today waiting to find out exactly whether we'll achieve a 5% reduction in emissions by 2020 off a 2000 base. Uh, and then we're left to wonder whether the Finkel process will be put in place as a minimum to get us to 26 to 28 yeah. percent reduction in emissions by 2030, which is half what the Climate Authority mentioned. So That's right. The climate this has been a long-term history of, of short-term politics. And um, I think the best example of what happened in the Liberal Party was by John Howard's statement, given by John Howard's statement at the end of 2013, when he was speaking to Nigel Lawson's climate denier group in London. And he said, he admitted that uh, he had played short-term politics with the issue and it suited him. He favoured the emissions trading scheme or some other significant response. When it didn't suit him politically, he didn't. And his final comment was, I remain an agnostic when it comes to climate change and I prefer to rely on my instincts. Mm-hmm. Well, what I've been saying is when 97% of climate scientists agree as to the significance, magnitude and urgency of the problem, it's not a question of religion, is it? It's a question of science. And I didn't like his instincts when he worked for him. I worked for him or he worked for me. Yeah. I don't think it's about instincts, it's about scientific fact. And, and uh, you know, the putting in place adjustment policies, mitigation policies that will, will actually get us to net zero emissions globally by 2050. Yeah. People might be wondering why I'm doing a program on the legacy, on the history. You know, maybe yeah. it doesn't matter, they might think. Just get on with it. And they certainly might not remember um, but Mark Butler said the Clean Energy Act, that one that was really achieved quite a lot in the Gillard government, he said it was short-lived because it didn't have consensus. Now, we've just had Christine Milne saying nonsense. There were other things that didn't have consensus that continued, like the GST. And I want to know, do you think that 
the Labour Party had been negotiated into a more radical position than it really could sustain. Was that the problem? Well, I think so. What I mean, if you go back just to, to the arrival of Rudd where you started, he came with a clear agenda, you know, ratified Kyoto, moved very quickly through the Ghana report, the legislation, uh, introduced an emissions trading scheme. If he couldn't get it up, he, he said he'd dissolve both houses of parliament and, and drive it through and to make it an election issue and drive it through. He got everywhere but to the last hurdle and then didn't do, do a double dissolution. And I have no doubt if he'd had that in 2010, he would have won and we would have had an emissions trading scheme in place all this time. However, it was used as an issue to undermine Rudd. And then Gillard was thrust into a position to get the election and she changed her mind uh, and said she would put a price on carbon, but did that in the February of the year, didn't, didn't say anything about it under July. So Tony Abbott then ran a totally negative campaign, having replaced Turnbull on the issue, ran a totally negative campaign, making all sorts of outrageous claims. And just we went from, you know, sort of from one iteration of it to the next. If we'd had bipartisan support, which did exist through Rudd's early early period, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today, but uh, it became a, a measure of short-term politics. Abbott uh, would say he won the election eventually against Gillard, destroyed the Gillard-Rudd-Gillard or the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd governments uh, with that issue and then, of course, proceeded to try and close down the renewable energy industry, which, as Christine's just mentioned, you know, we managed to at least save the target even though it was reduced. In that process, Labor was bullied through the Gillard years. It was bullied uh, into the reduction in the target from 41,000 gigawatt hours to 33.5. Yes, but, uh, you know, it's no point apportioning blame, quite frankly. I mean... Everyone's got to rise above this. This is intergenerational theft. We're leaving a bigger legacy to our children than we could ever have imagined by not adjusting, making adjustments now. And, uh, you know, both sides... And Shorten more recently has been trying to wedge Turnbull on the issue because Turnbull appears to have weakened his position. It's not about scoring short-term political points. It's about coming together to solve a problem of national significance, of global significance and a very urgent challenge. Well, I agree with you on let's rise above it. That's a great mantra. But at the moment we've got, uh, well, Butler said it and uh, Christine Milne also said it. Um, I don't think you'll agree with this, but a lot of people are thinking that there's an ideology afoot. There's a kind of a right-wing thinking pattern that nobody can really fathom that seems to be quite inappropriate for a time of such challenge that we've got? What it's, do you not, think? it's not a question of ideology. I mean, I, I, I struggle to find ideology in the Liberal Party these days, and I struggle to find legitimate ideology in the Labor Party as well. I mean, what we've got is short-term political opportunism, bit of populism, trying to just sort of win votes at all costs uh, and not worry too much about the longer-term consequences of anything they do or say. So the big issues have been left adrift. Climate's one of them, budget repair's one of them, you know, the so-called mantra of jobs and growth, they've all been left to drift because of this short-term political game. And that's where we need leadership and we, we need people to stand up and not hollow statements by short and saying, oh, look, I, I'll offer bipartisan support no, when he's actually just trying to wedge Turnbull. We want them to rise above it. I mean, they have a responsibility in the national interest to get away from short-term politics on this issue. And I've come to the view now that... It's too important an issue to be left to politicians, to today's politicians. I'm I think we should the set up thing. an independent commission, <laughs> independent commission that has authority to put in place a transition strategy to those 2030 targets and then 
to the 2050 objective. But you see, you say it's too important for politicians, but politicians have these um, groups to advise them, like the Climate Change Authority, but Tony Abbott, just before Paris, didn't take their advice, and, and they were no, suggesting... Listen, do they? You know, so how, what's the point of having... You know, we pay three... I saw when Matt Canavan no, didn't have his right passport. He, he, he earned $300,000 as a cabinet minister. I was very shocked. You might think I'm naive, but I was shocked to think that someone earns well, that money to you, be so destructive. I remember my frustration in the Fraser years of the government uh, trying to set interest rates and exchange rates. Wrote a piece in 1980 saying it's time we had an independent reserve bank to actually oversee the conduct of monetary policy on the basis of market-determined interest rates and exchange rates. And that seemed like an outrageous call at the time, but it's the only place we could have gone, the only place the world would have gone in terms of monetary policy, independent monetary authorities. I think we now need an independent climate authority that has the power to put in place the transition that's required because we can't have any more short-term politicking on this issue. Okay, how would that be made up? Well, you know, you have to put in place a pretty careful structure. It has to be you know, independent board and uh, independently governed. It has to be adequately funded. It has the capacity to draw on expertise from wherever it wants to in the world. And, uh, you know, I think that um, there'd have to be some mechanism by which uh, its, its, uh, its policies could be implemented um, in the interest of the nation, not in the interest of any political party or particular individual. I think a lot of people would very much welcome something that's permanent, that's that's in perpetuity, and that therefore, you know, you, like business would, wouldn't they? They can make investments in terms of something. Well, being... Finkel, Finkel pointed out that one of the biggest problems we've got is a lack of certainty. The bankers are sitting back watching, uh, you know, not wanting, willing to fund some of these projects on the basis that we're not sure, sure that you know, tomorrow morning the government won't announce that it's going to fund a new ultra-supercritical coal-fired power station downfall. It would make no, absolutely no sense. Be a completely standard asset in financial terms very soon. <clears throat> but that's the sort of game we're playing. One day it's Snowy Hydro, the next day it's a coal fired power station. Yep. And somebody talks about a renewable strategy for Tasmania. Or- it, it, it is just short term politics to the detriment of the national interest. Well, thank you very much, John. Um, I'll have to leave you now because we're nearly at the yep. end of our hour, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was John Houston, former leader of the Liberal Party. And now over to Kurt for the outro and what to do. Yes. Uh, What a galvanizing show. Um, There's a few actions you can take this week if you feel similarly inspired. Um, So curl up with Mark Butler's book, which you uh, you heard from him in the the first interview, and decide for yourself about what he's written. Um, So you can get this on uh, Melbourne University Press. It has an e-book edition, so you can download it right now for $12.99. The paperback is $27.99. Just Google Climate Wars. It should be the top one. Uh, also on, Climate for Change is holding a movie night featuring To the Ends of the Earth, which is a feature documentary that explores the rise of extreme, a.k.a. unconventional, energy in our society. Uh, it's on on September the 13th at 6.15 at Long Play Bar, uh, 318. St. George's Road, Fitzroy North. Now, that's in a couple of weeks, obviously, but you need to RSVP now to avoid disappointment. Go to www. 
climateforchange.org.au and click the events button. Now, stay tuned for the next show, which is Voices Voices of Community Energy podcast featuring Rob Baxter from VREC and SoulShare in Vancouver. Um, British Columbia is one of the most difficult places in the wo- in the world to make solar photovoltaics stack up financially. The Canadian province has a huge hydro energy dam, but which provides much as eighty percent of the power on the grid at a very low price. Solar installations are relatively expensive, and the amount of energy they produce isn't particularly great. But this didn't stop Rob Baxter and a team of intrepid pioneers from forming VREC, a worker-owned co-op who inst- installs solar on houses and businesses in the Vancouver area. They've been at it for years and today employ three people full-time and bring in part-time workers they need for installations. So thanks so much to our guests, Mark Butler, Christine Milne, and John Hewson, some really big names there today. Uh, thanks to the team, uh, Jody on promotions, Andy on the panel, Viv for all the interviews. My name is Kurt Johnson, and this is 3CR Community Radio.